Well, welcome to Menlo Church. We're so glad you're joining us today. We're a church that believes that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. So we hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, good morning. Thank you. Um, I, bring you, I bring you greetings from Bonham Presbyterian Church. It's a sister eco-church. I'm one of the pastors there in the St. Louis area. It's a 203-year-old church. I've only been there for part of that time. Uh, but uh, I bring you greetings from those brothers and sisters. And uh, I also, just so you can get to know me where I'm coming from uh, this morning, I also have had the opportunity and the honor over the last couple years to work with Lutheran Hour Ministries and the Barna Group to every year do an in-depth study and think tank on different topics that are interesting and important and fascinating for Christians to wrestle with for how to be faithful Christians in our day and age, in, in the actual world that we walk on. And in 2018, the topic of study was spiritual conversations. So I'm just thrilled that, that you guys as a whole church are using the Advent season to think about spiritual conversations. It's a great time of year to do that. Uh, always around this time of the year, Jesus is trending as a topic. Uh, and, and, and so it's a great opportunity to like reflect on our own conversational habits, maybe our conversational allergies, and, and just reflect on how we talk about our faith. And that's what this series is about, real talk, spiritual conversations in Silicon Valley. Now next week, we're gonna be looking at five myths that, have, that we've discovered in the research that we believe about spiritual conversations and how people experience spiritual conversations that aren't true. Doesn't that sound fascinating? Like, what are, what are we assuming that isn't really true? You guys wanna learn what those are? You gotta come back next week. That's, we're gonna do, gonna do that next week. And then the week after that, we're gonna be talking about how to engage in spiritual conversations. If we're gonna be talking about our faith with people in our life, what's the wisdom that the Bible gives us that actually the research confirms really is wise? And so we're gonna be taking a look, look at that. Does that sound interesting and helpful? You're gonna to have to come back the week after that uh, for that. This week, we're starting with the why. We're just gonna pause and just in an unhurried way, wrestle with that question. Why do we need to care about spiritual conversations? Why does it matter for us as believers? Why is this an important part of our life to be thoughtful about in talking about our faith with people in our life? And that, that's what we're wrestling with. And, and the reason we're starting with that, and we're gonna get to great stuff in the coming weeks, but the reason that we're starting with the why is because something changes inside of us when you encounter the Bible's answer to the question of why should we talk about our faith. I had a personal experience with this several years ago where I, I, was, I was kind of an introverted, kind of reluctant campus pastor. That, that's on my resume, introverted, reluctant campus pastor. Uh, and and, and I, I, I encountered, even in the midst of my reluctance, the Bible's answer to why we talk about our faith with other people, and it changed the course of my life. It changed the trajectory of my relationships in my own household, in my neighborhood, in my family, and people that I work with. Uh, so, it, but it was in a surprising place. It wasn't in a church uh, that I encountered it. It was while taking my kids to the pool. Anyone ever go to the pool? 
It's like an unassuming thing to do, right? I lived in Boulder, Colorado with my wife and I at the time. We had two kids at the time. We have three now, but we had two at the time. And they were still young ones. They were six and five. If you've ever taken kids to the pool, uh, you know what this... You already have the picture in your head. My kids were running ahead on the grass barefooted, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And the closer we got to the pool and the sounds of the splashing, the more excited they got. And I had my arms full of all the accoutrement that the parents have to bring, right? And I'm walking because it's hot, and my kids, I'm just not walking fast enough for my kids, right? Have you ever been there? And then an interesting thing happened. We turned the corner of the clubhouse. We lived in a condo that had this kind of shared pool area. And we turn this corner, and so like now we can see the pool uh, through the gate and through the fence. And so my kids, they're at the gate. They've run ahead, and they're like, you know, so excited. And while I'm getting close to them, I hear off to my right, kind of in the midst of just the regular summer sounds, birds and breeze and the kids playing in the pool, just a soft kind of muted noise off to my right. So soft, barely noticeable that I just, I didn't even pay attention to it. I kept walking. But I hadn't taken more than a few more steps when I felt just this, just this nudge from God, pay attention to that noise. And so I did what all reluctant disciples of Jesus do. I just kept walking. Because my kids, there was barely anything to the noise, and here's my kids, and they're, they're screaming, you know, they want to go to the swimming. But as I kept stepping, I just, again, it was a nudge from God, pay attention to that noise. And so I made my kids' day by saying to them, actually, can you just sit down right here? We're not going to the pool yet, which you can imagine how much they love that. And then I went over feeling very much like a peeping Tom, like, okay, God, like there was a noise somewhere over here. It's just another condo building. And there's all these patios with privacy fences. And so I walk over and I hear, from where I thought I had heard this noise, I hear a yipping dog. I'm a proud Chihuahua owner myself. And so it was like a small dog and I hear a dog yipping, yipping and I, and I, and I walk over and it was one of these privacy fences where every other vertical board is like on the other side and then there's one on this side and then one on this side. Does that make sense? I'm not good at describing carpentry things, but it's the kind of thing if you get close, you can peer through. You know what I'm talking about? So feeling like a peeping Tom, I go and, and just, again, it's this, this nudge from God. Pay attention to that noise. Just this little muted thud that I had heard. And so I get close. My kids are yelling at me, Dad, let's go swimming. Where, who is that? What are you doing over there? And I'm thinking, I don't know. Ask God. Uh, and, and as I peek through this one where, where this dog is, I see uh, the movement of uh, dog fur and I see blood on the ground. And like my adrenaline starts going and I, and, I, and I grab hold of the top of the fence and I pull myself up just for two seconds and in a snapshot what I saw was an elderly woman lying on the ground, a pool of blood coming from her head and the dog uh, distressed. I'm going to spare you any more detail than that because I don't want to faint uh, and I'm not good with bodily fluids and such, but I got off the fence, I, I yelled at my kids, stay right there, and I climbed over, scraping myself up and just dove awkwardly into this woman's um, chaos. Her name was Nancy. She was an elderly woman wearing her sleeping garments and um, she had fallen and she had a low-lying wrought iron, a low-lying wrought iron um, table. And she had caught the full force of the fall on her head on the corner of this wrought iron table. And she was bleeding out. I'll spare you the details. I called 911. I did what I could. She came to. The paramedics came. When the paramedics arrived, uh, I remembered, I have kids. 
I know, parent of the year uh, trophy. And so I go back out, I open now the patio thing, and I look at the uh, bench, they're gone. And I'm thinking, what have I done? And then I look, there's an ice cream truck on the, on the road, and it's siren call had pulled my five and six-year-old over, and I was like, guys, come in here. And they're like, whose house is this? They're walking in. And they're like, why is there blood? Why is the dog bloody? Who's this lady? And I said, just sit on the couch. The paramedics did their thing, which I love that they're called to do so that I don't have to. It turns out she was okay in the end. She went to the hospital that day. But when they were uh, strapping her in on the pushy thing to take her out uh, to the ambulance, one of the paramedics pulled me aside, and he said, um, I just want you to know, we're not sure what would have happened to her had you not come along right when you did. Which was really his way of saying, we're sure what would have happened to her if you had not come along when you did. And in that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit came and just said to me, Don, that's what it's like. There are people all around you who are spiritually bleeding out without the comfort and the sanity and the joy and peace of the gospel. It was like God said to me, if you had my eyes, you would know there are people lying down, bleeding out spiritually all around you. That's why I call you to have conversations with other people. Confronting the sobriety and the seriousness of the need that was around me, even though it looks like a beautiful summer day, uh, it changed how I engaged in conversations with the people around me. And, and that's what I love about passages like the one that we're gonna read in John 20 because in that, we see Jesus confront his early church with the same answer. Uh, this is John 20, three verses. You have three verses in you this morning? You think we can do it? Yeah, they're short. They're, they're short verses. Uh, it, so John 20, late in the gospel, Jesus is newly resurrected and his church, his young church, is in hiding. Notice how it begins. Let's look at verse 19 with each other. On the evening of that day, this is the day that Jesus was resurrected, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, da, 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 it goes on. There's an actual verb and sentence that comes, but I just want to pause there to make the observation that Jesus' young church is hiding from the world around them because they're afraid of the people in Jerusalem. You guys ever heard uh, the phrase, a holy huddle? I think this is the first historical record of a holy huddle. Literally, the church, because they're afraid of other people, they are, have gone alone in a room and they've locked the door and they're hiding away from the world around them. Now, if you read from the beginning of John's gospel up to chapter 20, this is an absurd scene. Like in the context of the Gospel of John, it is ridiculous that the people that Jesus has called to minister to a hurting world have locked themselves in a room to stay away from the hurting world. It's like a, it's a, it's a ludicrous picture, but it won't be the last time that there's a holy huddle. It won't be the last time, and you guys know as well as I do throughout church history, and maybe even throughout our lives, there are seasons, there are moments when individual Christians or like even whole churches, even whole like streams of the church hold themselves up and separate themselves from the people around them because they're afraid. 
Uh, in fact, the latest research confirms, I believe, that we are in the West, we are in one of those seasons right now. We have an increasing fear of the non-Christian culture around us, and one of the results is that we are uh, holding ourselves off from our culture. Um, the latest research, it, it, it really, what it does is confirm and quantify what most Christians living in the West just feel in our guts. We just feel intuitively Namely, that living as a Christian in an increasingly post-Christian culture ain't easy. That's what the research confirms. For example, 65% of all Christians in the United States, we found, feel misunderstood because of their Christian faith. 60% of all Christians in the U.S. feel persecuted. 48% of us feel marginalized, 46% of us feel silenced, and 47% of us are afraid to speak up about our faith uh, for fear of the reaction of the people around us. Now, there's nothing really surprising about being a Christian in a culture that doesn't like Christianity or not as much as it used to. There's nothing surprising, right? Paul, Paul was writing to young Timothy, you'll recall in his second Timothy, and he said, Timothy, preach the gospel both in season and, do you remember what he said next? And out of season. As if there are going to be just there are going to be different seasons. There's going to be seasons when being a Christian makes people trust you, and there's real social coin that comes with the gospel. But there's going to be other seasons when the gospel has no social coin, and people will distrust you because you are a Christian, right? And, and there's nothing we can do to control that. Uh, Paul just says there's going to be a, a pendulum. It's going to change over time. Uh, and his point to Timothy was, you know, just don't stop talking. But what we see in the research is it feels a certain way, even though it's not surprising or it's not rare to be a Christian in a culture that distrusts Christianity or increasingly does, but it does feel a certain way. To feel the shift in the winds feels a certain way to us. And the research confirms that how it feels is actually starting to affect our behaviors. We're actually beginning to behave differently because of how it feels. Can I give you just one example from the research? Is it okay if we get a little bit nerdy, like do an infographic or something? I know it's like not even the work week or the school week, but let's get nerdy a little bit. Uh, look, look at this, uh, this graph here. One of the things in 2018 that we tried to, uh, that we asked people was, uh, do you feel that it is more common now than in the past for people around you to see it as offensive if you bring up your faith, if you talk about your faith. Uh, and so the interesting thing is among boomers, 31% of them said, yes, I believe it is increasingly seen as offensive for me to talk about my faith. Gen Xers, 48%. Millennials, 61%. You don't have to be a statistician to notice a trend, right? Do you see it? It is increasingly being seen as offensive. That's our perception as Christians. Now, reality may be different, and it is a little bit different, actually. But our perception is increasing that if I talk about my faith, I'm going to be seen as an offensive person doing something that's offensive. That feels a certain way, and it's actually starting to affect how much we talk about our faith. Let's throw up one more uh, uh, graphic this morning. Now, uh, we asked people to estimate how many spiritual conversations they had had in the previous 12 months. And we were very careful and explicit in defining a spiritual conversation. 
So it wasn't just like an evangelistic conversation. That's, that's not what we're talking about. An evangelistic conversation was when a Christian talks about their faith with someone who doesn't share their faith, right? They talk about Jesus with someone who's not crazy about Jesus. But our definition was broader than that. So it includes that, but it's broader. Our definition, and we were very careful with our, the people in the research, a spiritual conversation is any, a conversation that anyone has with anyone else about their faith or their lack of faith. And so an evangelistic conversation is a spiritual conversation. Talking with your spouse about your own faith, your own walk with God, is a spiritual conversation. Talking with your kids about why we do Advent or you know, different things, that's a spiritual conversation. Um, so does that make sense? It's like a really broad category. I want you to understand it because then you can understand how bad the news is. Are you ready for how bad the news is? Okay, a little bit of good news. You see the two warm colors, 10 and 17%. Those, about a quarter of all Christians are having lots of spiritual conversations. Can we cheer for that? Yeah. And, and I, I'm guessing all of you are in that category. That's my generous assumption, okay? Um, and, uh, and, and they are what the researchers call eager conversationalists, and there's lots that we can learn from them, really hopeful, helpful stuff in the research. But I would like us to look at the, the cooler colors, the blues and purpley kind of, kinds of colors. They tell us that three-quarters of all Christians, are you, get ready to groan, okay? Three-quarters of all Christians in the United States estimate that they had nine or fewer spiritual conversations in the last 12 months. Can we groan? Yeah. That's, an, that's about one every month and a half. Not evangelistic conversation. Anytime they're talking about their faith or lack of faith with another human being. Nine or fewer in a year. 32% of us, one third of us, could only recall one or two spiritual conversations from the last 12 months. And a full 9% of all Christians in the U.S., so about a tithe of the church, remembers having not a single time when they talk to another human being about their Christian faith. It is safe to say that the cat has got our tongue. That what it feels like to be living in our culture, there is a kind of fear that we feel that is making us be quiet and not talk about our faith with anyone in our life. John says that the young church was in a room together, the door was shut, the door was locked because they were shaking in their sandals for fear of the people in Jerusalem. I think that's a decent picture or metaphor increasingly of the state of Christians uh, in the U.S. today, that because of our fear of offense that we are getting quiet and not talking about our faith anymore. This is what I love about this passage, you guys, because we get to see Jesus go into the room of their fear, and we get to see, like, what does he do to them, <laughs> you know? Because it, it, it teaches us, like, what does God think about our silence? What does he have to say to us? Does he go into their room? Does he go in there and go, I can't believe you are locked away up here? You guys are terrible. You know, I'm starting over. I'm getting another church. Does he do that? Uh, do, does he just not even go in and like, I'm through with you guys, you know? Does he, does he walk away? This is what I love about this passage, because Jesus goes into their room with their fear with them. He's not afraid of the stink of fear. He's not afraid of it. And then he interacts with them with grace and with truth and compassion. 
and he reminds them of two things, two answers to the reason why should we engage in conversations about our faith. Two answers, number one, because our gospel is so good, and number two, because there's so much need in the world around us. Watch him as he reminds them of these two things. Verse, the end of verse 19, we'll finally finish that sentence and get verse 20. John writes, Jesus came and he stood among them, right? They're in a locked room, but somehow he got in there. Awesome. And he said to them, peace, right? They're all shaking and afraid and he's like, no, and he just, he speaks peace over them. Peace, no fear, peace. And then he does a really interesting thing. When he had said, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. Isn't that interesting? He showed them his wounds and his side. This is the moment in history when the Christian church became convinced, not just of the crucifixion, that Jesus had suffered and died an atoning death for our forgiveness, but that they also became convinced of the resurrection. Amen? They became convinced, oh my gosh, he's got the wounds and he's walking. They became convinced that he was resurrected, that he didn't just die for our sins, but that he was resurrected. He defeated death and judgment and is now alive and leading his church and sitting on the throne of David. They became convinced and reminded of the full-throated glory of the gospel. He says, peace to you. Check me out, he says. And they do. He says, don't look at your fear. Lift your eyes up. Look at me. Look at the victory that we have. And then John tells us this. I love this next sentence. Then, and we have to pay attention to our connecting words, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You bet they were glad. He was alive. He had not only died for their sins, but he was alive to reign victorious. And so it says, then they were glad. They were like, they're not shaking in their boots anymore or in their sandals anymore. And there's something about, this is a lesson we need to have. We need to, when we're afraid, in this moment in history, it is important that we become more Christocentric than we have ever been, more cross-centric than we have ever been, that we lift our heads up from our fearful gaze at the culture around us, and we look at Jesus Christ in all his victory. We need that. We need to remember how good the gospel is. I love how James S. Stewart, he's one of my, I'm a pastor, so I never get to go to church and listen to sermons. It's like a vocational hazard. Uh, and so I read my sermons, uh, and, and the ones I usually read are by James S. Stewart. He's a, he's a, a former Scottish um, preacher. You know he's Scottish because his middle initial S, his middle name is also Stewart. So his name is James Stewart Stewart. So you can't get much more Scottish than that. He, he put it this way in talking about the cross. I wish I could like affect a Scottish accent. I can't. So I'm just going to read it. Just imagine Sean Connery reading these words. It is my conviction that dark and threatening as the human prospect may appear to be in these tumultuous days. He wrote this in the mid-1900s. It could have been written yesterday, right? As dark and threatening as the human prospect may appear to be in these tumultuous days, there is something in our Christian inheritance which needs only to be understood to counterbalance our low moods and disquiets and to make us, even in this desperate time, more than conquerors. Amen? He says... We must remember Jesus. Why do we engage in spiritual conversations? Because our faith is extraordinary. We've been handed a treasure. We have life in Jesus. 
So we need to be reminded of this. We're gonna sing a song a little later on, a bigger than I thought, and I love that the song it talks about, it says, speak to me when silence steals my voice. I believe that our culture is stealing our voice away. It's part of what's happening to us, and we need God to speak to us in the midst of that, to remind us of how big he is, that he's bigger than we thought, so that we can just say, okay, I rest in your arms. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to shake in my sandals. I can rest in my Father's hands. He's in control, he wins. That's one half of the reason why that the Bible gives us to have spiritual conversations about our faith because our faith is a treasure. It is powerful. The second half of the reason is that we're surrounded by people in desperate need of that treasure. And that's where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, he had to repeat himself, peace be with you. And then he says, and I love this, as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. The Father had love for a hurting world, and so he sent his son Jesus to go to that hurting world, even though he would get hurt in the process. And Jesus says, I love how he enters into their fear and he gathers them around. He's like, check me out, man, we win. And then he says, look at the door. I want you to unlock the door. I want you to open the door. There's people out here who need to know about this victory. This is the moment in history when the church is sent with the gospel. And ever since then, the church is sent. That's why the church exists, to glorify God and then to go and share that glory with other people. That's the part of the story we are in. We are sent ones. I, I, you know, uh, you, you've heard of the, uh, the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. And we'll throw that up there. You're probably familiar with this verse. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. When I first heard this growing up, sitting in the pew, I remember thinking, that is so sweet that God put one verse in the Bible for missionaries. Isn't that lovely that he did that? That was so nice of him. Because I thought this was like for other people to do this. But I've been disabused of that misreading of this passage by engaging in the dangerous activity, which I highly recommend, of hanging out in the pages of the Gospels. <laughs> because it turns out this is everywhere. It turns out all the Gospels end with a great commission. Not just Matthew, we're familiar with that one, but uh, look at Mark. Uh, this is how the Gospel of Mark ends. He said to them, go into the all, world, all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole of creation. Luke ends this way. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then John ends with his disciples shaking in their sandals for fear, locking themselves away in a holy huddle, and then Jesus interrupts their fearful reverie, and he says, oh man, look at me, look at them, let's go. And this has something to do with proclaiming, with our conversation. I don't know why God chose to use our conversations to share his treasure with the world, right? We're like, our conversations are like clay pots, Paul wrote, but they carry the treasure. I love how Paul put it in Colossians 4. He said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, towards non-Christians. And then he goes on. There's so much good stuff in Colossians 4 about how to be wise. Like, if you're going to have spiritual conversations, at least don't be foolish when you do it, right? Like, be wise. And there's a lot of wisdom in here. But we're not talking about that this week, right? I just want you to notice this one phrase there where he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Can you read the rest of the sentence with me? Making the best use of the time making the best use of the time. In the Koine Greek, the, the literal translation of this would be cashing in on the appointed moments. 
Isn't that interesting? God will nudge us. You're going to be living your life, Paul says. You're going to maybe be following your kids to the pool or doing things, and everything's going to look fine around you, and God's going to nudge you. Pay attention to this conversation. Linger in this conversation. Pay attention to this person in your social circles. And when God nudges you, Paul says, cash in on it. Don't let it go by. Don't just walk into the pool. Pay attention. Cash in on those moments. I think sometimes we might be tempted. I don't know if you're like this. I think I'm like this, and brothers and sisters at my church are. Because we live in a kind of nice area, I think sometimes we're tempted to believe that there's no real spiritual need around us. Like we, we believe, we know that there's spiritual need and people need the gospel, but their yards look so nice. You know what I mean? It's like I'm walking on that summer day to the condo and like every, everything, you know, the bushes were all trimmed. And I think it has this way of making us think, well, spiritual need must be somewhere else. My neighbors are all smiling. And yet the reality is, as I learned in an unforgettable way, we're surrounded by spiritual need. But people who are maybe smiling physically, but they're bleeding out, lying down in their soul. T.S. Eliot, I love how he memorably put this as a, as a kind of a reminder of the need that exists all around us in his Choruses on the Rock, which I highly recommend. T.S. Eliot's very readable, a profound Christian towards the end of his life. But, but, but uh, he, he, he used as a metaphor, as an image for spiritual need, he used the, the image of uh, the desert kind of as a, a stand-in for spiritual need. And, and this is what he wrote in Choruses on the Rock. You neglect and belittle the desert. You neglect and belittle the spiritual need around you. And then he writes, the desert is not remote in southern tropics. The desert is not only around the corner. I love this next line. The desert is squeezed in the tube train next to you, like a subway. The desert is squeezed in the tube train next to you. The desert is in the heart of your brother. It's this reminder that wherever we go in life, there is spiritual need squeezed into the cubicle next to us, squeezed into the classroom next to us, squeezed into the boardroom next to us, squeezed into the subdivision next to us. We're surrounded by spiritual need. Why do we engage in spiritual conversations? Because the good news is good, and we're surrounded by people who actually need it. And here's the thing, and, and, and this is what was so profound to me, I could not see Nancy. That's a historical fact. I could not see her where she was bleeding out. But God could. And he nudged me, a reticent disciple, he nudged me to pay attention to her. And it saved her life. After, uh, you know, when the, when the uh, paramedics took her to the hospital, uh, my kids said, can we go swimming now? And I was like, oh, right, yeah. So uh, my hands were still really shaking, and again, like the spirit was like teaching me this lesson about need that we, take, we, we don't see. And so we go, and they go in the pool. I'll never forget this moment, you guys. The sun was setting 
uh, over the flat irons, beautiful there in the, in the Rockies. And I step into the water, into the shallow end, and I'm kind of walking in. I'm just, I'm processing and like just processing their spiritual need all around me. And I don't mean to be gross or like try to be overly dramatic. I'm just reporting what happened to me, okay? I'm walking in the water, I'm getting deeper and deeper, and I'm like, man, I'm surrounded by need. And then I realize there's something weird in the water. And I look, I'm like, what is this? And I, I realize I have Nancy's blood all over me. And it's coming off into the water. The deeper I get, it's coming off, which I know is gross. My assumption is the chlorine like took care of it like that. Like, I'm, just, I'm just choosing to believe that, okay? If you're a scientist and you know differently, please don't disabuse me of, of my perception. But as this blood is going off, as I'm, I'm thinking about spiritual need around me and then I see this human blood of someone whose life was saved because I responded to the nudge. Listen, I, I mean, the, the reality is like, I know that God is the author of salvation. I believe that. This proclaims it, and I really do believe that. God could use anyone to save Nancy. He can use anyone to save the people around us. I, I, I know that. But as I see the blood, I'm just reminded of the high stakes, and, and I'm so sobered and convicted because I came within a razor's width. I came so close to not going over. There was no good reason for me to go over there was all the good reason in the world for me to just go to the pool. That's where Paul's language, I think, is so important. Cash in on the moments. If God nudges you to linger on a conversation, to pay attention to a conversation, to engage in a conversation with someone, we want to be wise about it. Absolutely, let's be wise. Let's not be foolish. And so let's learn what the Bible teaches, what the research confirms about how to graciously adapt our conversations. So yes, come back next week. But from John 20 and from Colossians 4, I guess I would just say, if God nudges you, pay attention. Who knows what good he might do even through imperfect people like us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for, I'm just so thankful for this uh, record that John kept for us of this interaction, and uh, we do, we, we, we tell you this morning, we're, we just cut honestly with you that we're like them in ways, and we confess ways that we are growing silent, and we, um, we're tempted to either isolate ourselves from the culture around us and the people around us, or to just get angry and bitter, and we, we confess that to you, Father. And we need help finding a third way and finding a way of love and grace and hope. Would you help us find that way? And Father, and I just ask specifically for us today, Father, would you be reminding us of why you call us to have spiritual conversations? Would you remind us anew this morning of the glories, the full-throated glories of the gospel? And would you sober us anew about the deep spiritual need that exists all around us? And, and Father, the reality is we need you to come into our room of fear with us, to invade it even though we try to lock uh, you out even at times. We need you to come in with our fear with us, to proclaim a benediction of peace over us. Remind us of how big you are, Father. Come confront us in our fear. 
Speak grace and truth to us. Help us rest in you. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Well, thanks for tuning in today. We hope you were inspired by this message and can find a way to take these teachings into your week. And we'd love to see you again. If you want to find out more about our church and what's happening around the church, you can follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.